At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at KeelyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. You know, the 2022 FIFA World Cup is reaching its climatic final game Sure, all you fans out there wearing your team colors right now listening to my voice of the 80 teams that qualified for soccer or um, football, as some of you may say. The final two teams, Argentina and France, are going to face off this Saturday in Qatar with billions and billions and billions. I'm using the word B, billions, tuning in for this final game. And while my home country of the United States was knocked out earlier this month, Today's guest is a key reason why our team found as much success as they did in this past World Cup and why they are set up for even greater things to come going forward. This is a name you're familiar with, Travis Thomas. Travis Thomas is the United States men's national soccer team's leadership and team dynamics coach. He helps strengthen mental and leadership skills for every single player on that team, as well as overseeing and elevating the culture that the team is building organizationally. Travis is no stranger to our Live Inspire community. Way back, my friends, before this World Cup, or the previous one, or even the one before that one, I held my first ever leadership conference right here in St. Louis, Missouri. It was an awesome two-day event, and not wanting to speak for the entire two days all by myself, I brought in some of my favorite speakers from around the world. One of those individuals was named Travis Thomas. I then brought him back to be part of the Live Inspired podcast. Many of you might remember his voice and that name from March of 2017. During that episode, he shared how improvisation has changed his life and how the three words, live, yes, and, has helped others find their path to living with greater purpose and authenticity. Well, today, Travis, back from Qatar, is going to share what seemingly insignificant steps led him to working with the United States men's national team, the joy of being with that team for the past three years, how he built the team camaraderie and the excellence from each individual player, maybe most importantly, what it means for you. My friends, whether you are going to be cheering for your favorite football team this weekend or you did not even know the World Cup was taking place, this conversation is going to be one you will not want to miss. So what I'm going to encourage you to do is to lace up your favorite pair of cleats, 
Grab your favorite Live Inspired journal, take out a pen, grab something to drink, and get ready to rock and roll with me. We're going to hit the pitch together as I bring on my friend, and he is my friend, and he will be yours after you listen to this episode. His name is Travis Thomas. Travis, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. John, good to be back. I don't know if this is a good thing or not, right? I don't know if it was like my, my first interview was so incomplete that you're trying <laughs> to fix it. You're trying to fix it years later. Um, I'm going to take this as a uh, as a high honor, so I'm happy to be back. Well, I have a friend who always says fourth grade was the best two years of his life. <laughs> so you are being brought back in, my friend. Uh, really, not to repeat the interview that you did with me back in March of 2017, but to elevate it. And so many of the conversations that you and I began back then. Yeah, you're living out on a global stage, and there's a lot we can learn from that, and a lot we can execute from that in our own lives. You know, again, I think authenticity and being honest, hopefully, is uh, that showed up in, in that first episode. And I think that, the, you know, the years following have been a good, uh, you know, example, I think, of some of those things coming to fruition professionally. Yes. And uh, yeah, excited to share. Well, I'm, I'm going to rewind the tape a little bit. We're going to talk a, a tiny bit fractionally about what you and I discussed way back in March of 2017. I'm sure every one of our listeners knows the conversation verbatim. Of course. But on the chance that they may have forgotten a sentence or two. First of all, you grew up in Flint, Michigan. Yes? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Flint. I always tell people that, you know, I, I've lived a lot of places since then, but I always tell people I'm from Flint with pride. And so, yeah, Flint will always be home. You had a lot of incredible examples of what leadership in action looked like. One of them was your father, entrepreneur, business owner, chef, dad, coach, among <laughs> many other job titles succinctly talk about your dad dad he was fully invested i know in 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 my activities and coached a lot of my youth teams and you know he had that flexibility being a business owner where he could create his own schedule a little bit so he he made sure he was always at games and he was always right he just loved being a part of it if you, if you whittle everything else away right from parenthood to, to have you know to have a father that was so fully invested and cared about their kids and what they were doing uh, he was that. My childhood was very idyllic when I think mm. about the influence that my parents had on my life. And so I was I was overly cared for. I was overly loved. You excel at soccer. I know you don't like to brag about it, but you you were an excellent soccer player. Or if you're, I'm sorry, for the, our European and global listeners, football. <laughs> so you, you played an awful lot of football growing up. Uh, uh, eventually, it's going to find you playing at university. Remind us where you went to college. Yeah, so I went to Principia College, which is right outside of St. Louis, on the other side of the, the Mississippi River. Uh, small liberal arts, Division three school. I wouldn't say I was excellent in soccer, John, but I was good enough to be able to play in college. And uh, <laughs> uh, played, played for four years. Actually, it was, a, it, was a, it was a difficult experience for me because I struggled and I struggled. There was a, a coaching dynamic there. And I, and I say that honestly, not because it, not because it was a bad coach, but because his style of coaching and how I'd grown up uh, were two different worlds. And so I really struggled understanding and being able to demonstrate the, the toughness and the physicality that was needed to perform well at the college level, but more specifically on his team. And so it was a real difficult growing experience yeah. for me those four years where I had to um, I had to reconcile some shortcomings that I had that I wasn't willing to look at. And even though I, I never really, 
mastered those in those four years. Right? It, it, there's no Hollywood ending where my senior season was this amazing season. It was, it set me up once I got out of school to actually address some of these, these shortcomings. Uh, it actually was, was part of the inspiration that got me into wanting to do the work that I'm doing now, John, because I recognized sort of my own, those own, my own areas that were a struggle and now when I, I, I'm like, oh, I can help other athletes that, that might have some of these shortcomings. But, you know, the real humbling part of that experience was, you know, a, a few years out of school and, and thinking like, oh, like it wasn't my fault, right? It wasn't mm -hmm. my fault. Then, you know, as you get a little maturity, I thought about, okay, well, I had a similar experience with this club coach. And I had a similar experience with this high school coach. And I had a similar experience with a college coach. And then you look in the mirror, hopefully at some point, and you're like, okay, hold on. What was the one common denominator from all these experiences? <laughs> I'm like, oh, wait a second, me, right? I was the common denominator. Maybe I need to look at myself. You talk about a coach challenging you that there's areas where you're not quite tough enough. And it's not just the physicality there. You're talking about the mindset and the heart and the effort. And then you talked about some shortcomings and um, how you kind of shrugged your shoulders because you didn't have them. <laughs> and then you recognize later on, wait a second, I might have at Principi and I might have at high school. And there were some club coaches that had the same kind of feedback yeah. to me. So for those of us listening to the podcast today who may not have a coach whispering in their ear, they may not even have a spouse or a partner whispering in their ear that there are shortcomings to elevate. How do we individually begin to recognize where we do have some opportunities for growth and how do we begin taking the next step toward that growth? Yeah, that's a really, really good question, John. It's, it's difficult. To, I think it's difficult to do on your own. I think the great thing about having a, a trusted support network is that my spouse can point out my blind spots. <laughs> and she does it really, they do. really Aren't well. Aren't that great at it? Right? My friends uh, are, are really good at, at pointing out blind spots, right? And um, when you have really good friends that you trust, right, they can do that. But when, when you don't have that, I, I think you know, all of us, you know, I think the part of going through struggle is that, you know, you, you hopefully reach a point where, you know, blaming, complaining, making excuses, or even feeling validated for your shortcomings, um, they no longer satisfy you, <laughs> right? It's like, it's like, okay, awesome. maybe they, they, okay, yeah, you were, uh, you were given a raw deal. Okay, all right. Does that, does that make me feel any better when I go to bed at night? No, it doesn't. And so you eventually get to a point where it's like, okay, am I willing to question my role in any of this? Mm. <laughs> Once you're able to do that, then I think you, you leave your, it's, it's humility, right, John? It, it's, it's are, you, are you allowed to, to humble yourself? You know, and I had a, a good friend of mine years ago who worked with high school students and he had to, he had to kick a, a kid out of school and he felt so bad. He called the, the parent, the parent cut him off and said, hey, listen, there's two types of people in this world, those who are humble and those who are about to be. Hmm. And that was stuck with me as I'm like, yeah, humility is the key. Because as soon as right, right in sports, as soon as you start reading your press clippings, you're in trouble, <laughs> right? As soon as you start believing that, that you are the reason for all the success, you're in trouble. And I think when we find ourselves in, in difficult times, it's an invitation to humility. Yes. It's an invitation to go, okay, what is my role in all of this? And it doesn't mean ultimately it's all your fault, but you know, we can always look at the situation and go, okay, is there more I could be doing here? Is there, is there areas of growth that, that I need to be open to? 
but if we don't have if we don't allow ourselves to be humble or humbled we're never going to see that man there's a lot there and you you began the answer with uh the b c e i think the blaming the complaining <laughs> and the excuses and i yeah. remember years ago you shared the, the same three with me and you said something to the effect of as long as you blame, complain, and excuse, you will remain a victim to your circumstances. Yes. I'm, I'm going to say that again because it's like that important. As long, listeners and viewers, as you blame, complain, or excuse, you will remain a victim to your circumstances. Tell us what that means, Travis. Yeah. So I just call that the victim mindset. Right, the victim mindset. When it, when any of us feel like victims, we are blaming, complaining, making excuses for our predicament. And here's the thing, John. It's not. It doesn't make you a bad person. It just makes you a person. <laughs> it makes you human. Right. We are all human. I have blamed, complained, and made excuses numerous times in my life. I will continue to do so. But it's recognizing when I am doing that, I am just operating from a victim mindset, which means that I'm stuck. Mm. Right. I'm just stuck. We're not going to find solutions when we're stuck in the victim mindset, because when we're stuck in the victim mindset, we're not taking any accountability for our role in this. And so it's once we're willing to to accept the situation and go, OK, yeah, maybe this was unfair. Maybe that wasn't right. Maybe this was unlucky. That's true. But then when we go, OK, and mm. what is my role in this? And. And what can I do about it, right? This is your, this is your current reality and what, what can I do about it, right? It doesn't mean you're gonna fix it and figure it out and solve it the way that you would like to, but, and you still need to do something about it if you are going to find any level of success or any level of satisfaction. So when someone is stuck, right? Whether someone is stuck in grief or they're stuck in you know, a, a health issue or they're stuck in, you know, a, a, a relationship, it's because we're not willing to recognize our role because what, as soon as we take accountability, we can take action to change the situation. But if I don't take accountability, there's no action for me to take because none of this is my fault. Part of the conversation you and I are having right now grew out of the discussion around yes and. Yes. You, as a young human being, started improv, and one of the one of the keys of improv is this idea of responding to the person next to you with the word yes, and, and yes was around acceptance, and and is around power. Would you talk about those two? And then I'm going to ask you about a book that you wrote. <laughs> yeah. So again, when I took improv in you know, my, my mid twenties and and went through an entire training center and started performing professionally the foundational concept of improvisation, which is the yes and, right? Everything is built from this concept of yes and. I didn't know in my mid twenties that in my late forties, it was gonna be the reason I'm working with the US national team. So the concept of yes and is, uh, was so powerful to me when, when I took improvisation because it was so simple, but it was so powerful. You know, it was, it was on a stage with a group of people and no matter what was presented to you, you had to say yes to it. Like it sounds easy, but it's not right. So you have to say yes to it. So if I have to say yes to it, that means I have to agree with it. And the and is not only do you have to agree with it, you have to add on to it. You have to collaborate with it. You have to build off of it. So whatever idea is given to me, I have to accept it that this is real 
And not only that, I have to collaborate with it. I need to respond and build off of it. So that's how improvisers tell stories. Yes and, yes and, yes and, yes and. They're always on the same page. They're always building off of each other's ideas. It's magic. It's, it's, it's a magical experience to go through. But I started looking at it off the stage as well. Like, how does this show up in my marriage? How does this show up in my professional life? How does this show up in, every, in sports? And I was like, well, it's all of it, right? Yes. The yes is acceptance. It's acceptance of what is. Not what I want it to be is the acceptance of what is. This is what is happening. Whatever I'm being confronted with is, is real, whether I like it or not. So the, 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 the more quickly you can say yes, the more quickly you are collaborating with reality. Mm. And now your and is your power to choose your response. Again, it's not about controlling the outcome. That's outside of my control, but I have tremendous influence over the outcome by how I choose to respond to the situation, right? The phrase I like to use is that when you're living yes and, you are in radical collaboration with reality. Hmm. Why does it seem that many folks prefer to live no but? So the diagnosis, no but. The complaining, no but. The weather, no but. The neighbor's dog barking, no, no but rather than accepting what is and then determining our next step into what could become. Yeah, and I would say it, it, it's, it's twofold. Well, it's connected, right? It's it, the reason no but is such a, a big part of our lives is because it's fear, right? And what is it fear of? It's, it's fear of the unknown. It's fear of what is outside of my control, right? The no but is, is really saying no, but I don't want this to be happening. No, but it's supposed to be different. No, but you're supposed to agree with me. No, but it wasn't supposed to rain on my wedding. No, a pandemic is not supposed to be happening. The no is, wait a second, wait a second. This is not how I was envisioning that this would go. All of a sudden, it has thrown our expectation out of whack. And so the illusion, right? You and I know this, John. The illusion is that we have any sense of control over what is happening. So, so if I buy into that illusion at any point and feel like I'm actually controlling what's going on outside of me, I set myself up for a big fall when things all of a sudden go in a different direction. But if I switch it and just accept and embrace the fact that I cannot control 100% of what is happening around me, right? And then now I want to say I'm emphasizing control. Again, I can influence what's happening around me, but I can't control it. I can do everything right and still have things go wrong. I can be the perfect parent and still have a child that makes mistakes, right? I can, I can make the best decisions financially and the stock market might still crash, right? So it's not, I can influence my life, but I don't control it. So mm. once I understand that, and actually embrace it and go, okay, I cannot control 100% of what happens to me. And I control 100% of how I respond to it. So a final little piece that I want to cover is this idea that in improv, ultimately, your primary goal is not to control and make yourself look brilliant. It is actually to respond in such a way that sets up your partner to make her, to make him look absolutely brilliant so that they may shine. And then their job is to do likewise. 
you mentioned earlier that you loved improv, not only for improv's sake, but for what it freed you to do as a spouse, as a parent, as a friend, as a coach, as a leader in life. Talk about this idea of utilizing improv, that yes and acceptance and power to elevate those that you are doing life with. I mean, I think honestly, at times I feel like a pretty selfish person, John, right? I want things to go my way, whether that's my personal life, professional life. Hey, like I want things to go this way. That's, that, that's how I think. Improv, like you said, it, it, comp it completely flips the script to how you think about yourself and how you think about relationships and how you think about teams. And again, that, that concept, that mantra we use is that every time I step on stage, my goal is to make my partner look brilliant, right? And so what do I have to do in order to make my partner look brilliant? I have to listen to him and her. I've got to focus on him and her. And no matter what they're doing, I need to try to collaborate and celebrate what they're doing. So where is my full attention? My full attention is not on me, how I look. My full attention is on them, right? So, okay, so take that off stage and, and, and take that into your marriage. Take that into parenting. Take that into your office. These are all relationships. So what makes great relationships flourish? Psychological safety, trust, respect, and value. The highest performing teams, sports, professional marriages have the highest levels of trust, respect, and value, psychological safety. All right, let's take it a step down now, now John. How do you create psychological safety? Do you create trust, respect, and value by being selfish and pushing your own agenda? Or do you do that by giving respect? by giving trust, by respecting the people that you work with. And when you shift your focus from what can I get out of this to what can I give, you start to develop a culture where people are thinking about others instead of themselves. I'm gonna, hey, it's the perfect pivot, man. So grab a sip of tea right now. I think you'll need it for the next one. You then wrote a book. Yes, and you gave me a copy, which I devoured, loved, and have shared many times. You also sent one to the men's national coach for our soccer club here in the United States. And my, my understanding is you simply wrote on there, uh, enjoy. And if I can ever help you with anything, <laughs> let me know. That's all you were. It wasn't like yeah. I'm looking for a job. Uh, my, my future income should be X. All you said was enjoy. And if I can ever help you with anything. Yeah. Let me know. Tell me more about that story. Right. So I wrote my book in 2016. I've got boxes of books in my trunk. And, you know, so I'm sending books out, you know, to anybody and everybody with zero expectation. Right. Because, you know, this, the, the cold send, you know, maybe you get a thank you card back. Right. If anything. Nothing. And, yeah. <laughs> but you're not banking anything on these cold sends. And so, you know, I'm a soccer guy. I love, I, I, I love soccer. And so. I remember it was uh, like November of 2019, Greg Berhalter, who is the, the coach, had been on the job since the beginning of 2019, kind of, you know, trying to rebuild the national team. And he'd been on the job, you know, for less than a year. And I just thought to myself, I should send Greg a book, right? And so, like I said, I wrote him a little note inside. Hey, I worked with a few of these players back at, when I was at IMG Academy, right? They're now on the national team. Hey, I'm a big fan of the national team. I'd love to chat sometime. Put it in the mail. I sent it to the U.S. Soccer House, care of Greg Berhalter. Right? I, I didn't have his home address. I'm literally sending it to the organization. You know, it's like as soon as I spent the three dollars for media mail to send that book to to Chicago, it was out of my head and like done. 
So a week later, John, this is like, this is the end of like a week later, I get a text and it, you know, that your, your iPhone says like, uh, maybe, maybe it says maybe Greg Berhalter, John, I was so out of it that I saw this and I'm like, who's Greg Berhalter? This is how out of it I am, John. I'm like, oh my gosh, wait, Greg Berhalter. And I look at the text and he says, thanks for sending the book. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got Greg Berhalter's cell phone. So I texted back, hey, Greg, hey, glad you got it. Hey, thanks for being in touch. Um, maybe we can chat sometime. And now I'm just kind of like dancing. I'm like, I can't believe he texted me. I'm never going to hear from him again, ever. But I've got his cell phone, right? I can sell it on eBay, whatever. Um, <laughs> so Thanksgiving comes and goes. And now it's like the beginning of December. I get a text from him again. Do you have a moment to chat? And so then I was like, hey, I don't want to waste your time what's up? And he said, Hey, I really enjoy the book. I love the concepts. And then he said, here is the, here's the culture and here's the vision I have for the national team. And we started talking about that. And he's like, I, I see some different areas where you might be able to help. Are you interested? <laughs> uh, and actually the question he said, he said, looking at 2020, what's your year look like? What a great question to get, right? What's your year look like? To which my response was flexible. <laughs> <laughs> And here I am in a Starbucks in Orlando, and the men's national team coach is, is taking me through a PowerPoint. He's like, here's the areas where I think you could really help. Are you interested? And we, that was the beginning of us hashing it out. And, and now here we are almost exactly three years to the day where he and I were having this conversation and on the other side of a World Cup now. And yeah, I mean, it's just been, for me, a dream come true never thought that this was a possibility it's just been an amazing experience and I, travis as you're sharing that i'm recognizing that some of our listeners don't know who greg is and they don't know what the men's national team is yeah uh, they may not have heard about what took place just a couple of weeks back and so tell us just shortly like a little bit more about greg yeah. and a lot more about what the men's national team is like what what is this group of guys what do they do to break it down it's it's you know, it's the best american players in the world Right. So these players are playing all over the world in the best leagues in the world. And so your national team is kind of like your all star team for your country. Right. So this is the best 26 men in the United States who play soccer. It's kind of like your Olympic team. Right. But in soccer, the national team, it, it's a bigger thing because it's a global sport. And so your national team, these guys are getting together numerous times throughout the year and they're playing in these international tournaments outside of their professional club teams. And then you know, the culmination is every four years, there is the FIFA World Cup, which is the biggest sporting event in the world. And it, you have to qualify for it, right? It takes about a year, year and a half to just to qualify for it. And there's great teams that don't even make the World Cup, like we didn't, we didn't in 2018. And so just to make the World Cup is a huge accomplishment and takes, you know, it's a four year cycle to do that. And then your goal, you, know, you get to the World Cup and how far can you go? And now it'll be four years before there's another one. Actually, it'll be in the United States in 2026. But it's such a big, long journey just to get there. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really for a soccer player, it's the greatest honor, the greatest prize you can really achieve is playing for your national team in a World Cup. And Greg Berhalter, who's a national team coach, uh, he went to North Carolina, played three years, and then he left and went to Europe to become a professional played his professional career in Europe for the most part, came back to America, finished his professional career in the United States, immediately got into coaching, 
coached in Europe a little bit, came back, coached in the United States, and then took over the national team in 2019. So this was a guy that I was watching as a national team player compete in, you know, World Cups. So you, you're in the Starbucks, you're drinking your latte, you're <laughs> a- acting all fancy, you're watching the PowerPoint Trying. presentation. Trying. What did Greg think your role might be? I think what he recognizes is that from a mindset standpoint and a culture standpoint, right? Because my book talks very much a lot about your, your mindset, but also how to create healthy, dynamic cultures. And so I think that aligned with what he was trying to create for the national team. He said, what I envision is, you know, you doing some, some mindset and team sessions with the players, right? And the staff around kind of the collective mindset that we're trying to create. Because I also see you just kind of making sure that we're staying true and consistent to the culture that we're trying to create here. And so that's looked like a lot of things, you know, like, like bringing in world-class speakers like yourself to address the team you know, before a game and thinking about all those different elements that will, that will support the motivation and the, the overall culture. I think it's wise to bring in world-class motivational speakers that just <laughs> put a, put a bow on that one. And what an honor it was to be part of that. Seriously, Travis, one of the highlights of my career to be in front of those guys. So thank you for it. I'm curious though, a lot of the work that you mentioned right there seems like it's done from you front of the stage through videos, whatever that is. But what you and I both know is the real work was done one-to-one Yeah, it's done when they're off the field. It's done when the PowerPoint is not any longer on, on screen. Talk about building a relationship where someone will actually allow you to put your arm around them and they are around you where, where trust can be built and uh, lives can be elevated. Yeah. I think early on, I would say the first year and a half I was, I was with the group. You know, and again, whenever this group would come together, it's always some variation, but a different group of guys, right? You're always bringing in the best players at that time. And so that group's going to be different a lot. Um, I would say the first year and a half, I was doing a lot of team sessions with the group. I think that was the opportunity, John, for me to build up credibility with the players. You know, does this guy know what he's talking about? What is this guy talking about? And so building up that credibility, but then from there, like you said, it's the one on relationships. I'm on the field at training with them every day. I'm going up and I'm talking to them every day. I'm in the locker room. I'm on the field before the games. I'm, I'm the guy that's constantly whispering in their ear encouragement and, mm. and, and support. And so I think over time, it's those one-on-one relationships and those start to start to take root. And, and, and now these guys know that, you know what, I know if I'm dealing with something, I can give Travis a call. I know if I'm dealing with something, I can meet with Travis and we can talk it through and it's going to stay between he and I, and he's going to help me, right? I just became another one of those supports they could reach out to. And I mean, that's the most fulfilling work for me, John, is when these guys who are the top in the world are sort of entrusting in you that, hey, can you help me? Mm -hmm. And, and, and to be ready for that. And I, I, I probably led the team in putting my arm around players, right? And I led the team in hugs, right? So <laughs> congratulating them and just reinforcing them that they deserve this and, and how proud I am of them. It takes time to develop those relationships, but that really is the most rewarding part of the work. So that's the one-on-one work. Ultimately, the, the job is to have them to fight for something bigger than themselves. And that requires culture and commonality and, uh, and community. 
And when you brought me into the, in, into the group, one thing that shocked me, and maybe it shouldn't have, but it really did, is just how radically diverse this group was. Mm-hmm. I know our country is, so it shouldn't come as a shocking surprise. This is as diverse a group of guys as I've ever presented in front of. So talk about how some of the unique challenges and opportunities with working with a group of guys that is so diverse as our men's national team is. I really feel, you know, especially after even going through the World Cup, the vision that Greg and the team came up with his first year was to change the way the world views American soccer, right? And so how are we going to do that, right, by, by, by creating a team that can compete with the best teams in the world? But I always, in the back of my head, I always thought, you know, it's bigger than this, right? I think we have the opportunity to change the way the world views America through our soccer. The culture, I think, became so important because I think, you know, we have three core anchors or values for the team. It's BDR. It's brave, diverse, and relentless, right? Everything that we do culturally stems back to those BDR anchors, those values. And so you mentioned just how diverse this group was. Well, diverse is one of our anchors. Not only the diversity of the players in the room, but our ability to solve problems with diversity, right? And so when I look at the roster, not only is it a great cross-section of what it means to be an American you know, in the United States, we have players that are American citizens, but grew up in London or grew up in Ghana, but they have these American roots, which allow them to be Americans. And you bring all those backgrounds together, And you go and ultimately it's about performing on the field, but how you perform on the field is almost more important than the performance itself. And so when I look at the World Cup and I look at us playing Iran in the World Cup, which had huge political uh, overtones to it that was was very tense and very combative. And it's plus we're playing a game that we have to win. And if they tie us, they advance to the knockout round. So there was all of the tension and you could have ratcheted it up to hatred, but it never got there. And to see our guys go out and compete at a high level and to battle and to win, and then to see our players going around and consoling the Iranian players on the field after the game, like genuinely consoling them because at the end of the day, you're a human and I'm a human. And where you were born and where I was born, it really doesn't matter. Let, let's just, talk about that for a moment. First, the lead up to the game, then the game, then the consolation afterwards, where these men were hugging and loving and encouraging and empathizing with other men. Tyler Adams is a player, you know, well, I believe he's our captain, but he was asked by an Iranian reporter, pretty, uh, not only candidly, but trying to stir some negativity without a doubt, around what, what is it like to represent a nation that is as racist as yours when you are a person of color? A lot of ways to respond to that. And I was in awe of the way he did. So t- talk about even how you get players in a conversation like that to breathe and to be respectful and to answer not in sound bites, but in authenticity, but not in a way that's going to give um give someone else what they were looking for. Yeah, I think if, if, if anyone gets a chance to go back and take a look at that interview, 
I think the, the thing even before the reporter gets to the question, John, is the reporter is belittling Tyler for continuing to mispronounce Iran. Tyler yes. kept saying Iran. And the reporter says, you keep mispronouncing our country's name. It's pronounced Iran. Can you once and for all get it right? Right. So yeah, that's I mean, how it, it came in. The first punch was thrown. Came in, the question was came in hot. I'm going to insult you out the gate, belittle you, and now ask you a question that is that is incredibly loaded, has nothing to do with soccer, and is going to try to back you into a corner. And 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 Taylor answers it in humility. You know, you and I were talking about humility, grace, and humility. And what does he say? The first thing he says is he goes, I. Oh, I apologize for mispronouncing your country's name, right? When John, you and I know what, what leadership looks like, the ability to diffuse defensiveness yes. by saying, I'm sorry. Thank you for correcting me. I'm sorry. And then as he goes on to answer the question and say that, you know, you know, yes, you know, you know, being a black man living in a country, you know, he, he goes on to say that I think, you know, America is constantly trying to make progress. Um, but he says also in that statement, he says it's about it's about people educating each other, just like you have educated me. Yeah, that's be brilliant. That is grace. If all leaders could look at that video and say, okay, you know, to acknowledge a wrong, I apologize, and then to thank someone for educating them. And what was he being educated on? This person's perspective. It's just an amazing, amazing example of true leadership. I mean, that's Tyler. <laughs> uh, and also, I think it's just reflective of just the overall culture that we were really trying to intentionally create since Greg took the team, which is to always keep in mind, what are we ultimately trying to achieve, right? We're always focusing our energy on performing at our highest level. And so it's being able to notice any distraction or any stimulus that is going to try to take you away from your main focus. And I think Tyler so beautifully, in what I was told afterward was the most hostile press conference the two of them had ever been a part of. They felt under attack from the time they walked in the door. But to, and if you go back and watch Greg's responses as well, graceful, humble, and it just completely diffused the tension instead of amping it up. And I think, I think it was really a testament to the consistency that we were trying to create with that culture for four years leading up to that moment. Mm. Yeah, it was, it was brilliant. It led to a wonderful game. I would imagine a whole lot of our listeners and viewers saw it or paid attention to it maybe shortly afterwards. Incredible game. Talk about preparing people for the big game. And then how once the whistle blows, the game begins, the mindset changes, and the preparation that you've been do doing now gets them going in a different direction. What, what's the difference between preparing and then delivering? If you're doing things really, really well, there's not a big difference. The performance is an extension of the preparation, right? And I think, you know, especially in the coaching world, coaches are constantly trying to create an environment in training that when it comes to game time, they're already prepared for the intensity and the pressure because we've been able to recreate that in our preparation. Yes. And so I think, again, I, when I look at the on-field performances, I, I, I love the, uh, what is it? Is it from Kung Fu? How you do anything is how you do everything, mm. right? How you do anything is how you do everything. And I think ultimately the culture of consistency that we were trying to create was 
even if we're not talking about mindset all of the time, everything that we do is an expression of our mindset, right? So we are intentional about it, right? We have our values, we have our anchors. We're always talking about intensity and we're talking about our diversity and we're talking about being problem solvers and we're talking about, you know, leaning into to the pressure and leaning into the opportunity. So the more you talk about it and then the more you incorporate that into everything that you do, the performance becomes the extension of that. What was so great about what Greg created with the team and with the culture was just such a level of consistency that when the guys would come into the team, they understood what the mindset of the group was and what the expectations were. But it's a constant process, right? Culture is a living thing. So it's a, it's a constant growing, living, maturing process. So I'm a, I'm a fan of your club. I'm a fan of our nation. I, I wish we'd even done better in the World Cup, but to make it in and then to advance through it is a big deal. Yeah. And as excited as I was to see the final score against Iran and for us to become victorious and, and continue on, by far, my favorite moment wasn't while the game was being played. By far, it was after it was played, and it was not while 18 or 20 guys were gathered around celebrating. It was while one of your guys walked over to one of the Iranian players who was broken and weeping and exhausted. And it's such a deep, it was a, about a lot more than a soccer game. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of things going on right now in our nations, and they lost. And one of your players walked over, and it wasn't just an attaboy, you know, pat on the back. No. It was a sincere moment of grace and love. Would, would you talk about that moment and, and then how you felt afterwards? And it really was. It, it was multiple players that on their own recognized a brother who was in pain and was willing to go over and give him compassion. And like I said, it was, it was a number of players. And a few of the players that were doing this, John, were U.S. players who didn't even play in the game. So they could have been walking around the field pouting you know, in their feels about, I didn't even get into the game. And, and, and the first thing that they're doing is they're consoling, they're consoling someone else and the pain that they're feeling. We didn't talk about this ahead of time. There wasn't like, hey, this is a great opportunity to show what great sports we are. There was no, there was no planning in this. It was, this was genuine, authentic compassion being shared on the field and a competitor recognizing, you know, another competitor and, and, and understanding, understanding that pain because they've gone through that pain themselves. I remember just walking around the field and just trying to congratulate as many Iranian players as possible or coaches as possible and, and, all, and recognizing that these guys were in a really tough spot as well. It, some of their players had tried different, different expressions of protest uh, and they were all threatened that if they, if they stepped out and did anything, that their families could be in danger. And right. And so these guys, these are just people, right? At the end of the day, they're just people. And they're they're doing the thing that they love and trying to do it at the highest level and not having any control over all of the the authoritative or the political stuff that's happening outside of their control. And so, you know, can it's humanity meeting humanity on the same level. And mm -hmm. I think that's that's what I saw on the field. And that's what I mean, at the end of the day, that's what I'm most proud of. Me too. It, it was beautiful. It was a highlight. And then right behind that one came the low light when the United States goes home. We pack our bags earlier than we desired. And of course, a lot of folks felt as if they could have done something to change the outcome. And when you feel like you've let yourself, your team and your nation down, 
there's a sense of grieving. And I heard from our mutual friend, Matt Miller, who is uh, my dear buddy, a board member, a coach yeah. at Live Inspired, that you had a conversation with the team around, hey, listen, what, what are you going to bring home? But what are you also going to choose to leave behind? Mm. So talk, talk about this idea of packing bags and how you've only got so much room in that bag. Talk about the exercise you did with the team and ultimately what it might mean for our listeners. Throughout the, the tournament, you know, we were there together for three and a half weeks. You know, one of the first messages that, that Greg had on the, the first meeting with the players was he put up a slide that said 20 years from now, right? And he's like, 20 years from now, what are you going to remember about this World Cup? And uh, to really frame that, that, you know, this is a moment in time, but this is a moment in time that people could be talking about for a long time. You're going to be talking about it for a long time. What do you want? What do you want to be talking about? Right. And, and to frame that. And then one of the things that we ended up creating was the night before every game, the coaches and the players, we would sit in a circle. Greg would just ask the players, hey, what, what does this mean to you? And then everyone would go around and, and share what it meant to them. And one of the nights it was, hey, recognize someone in this group that has really inspired you. And so we did this. It became like a, it became a family meeting, hmm. became a family meeting the night before every game and everyone shared and it was just a great opportunity to connect. And so we were, we were always just kind of uh, appreciating the moment, staying in the moment. And so when it was over, I, everyone obviously grieves in their own way, but um, you know, yes, everyone's going to come home and they're going to second guess what we could have done better to get a, to get a better result. But I think what we did throughout the entire tournament is we were always just capturing, we were capturing moments the entire time. And so as you leave, what are you packing with you, right? Do we pack resentment or hurt in our bag and carry that with us? Um, or are we, allowing ourselves to feel all the, the, the hurts and the hard stuff and to learn from it and to take the lessons, but there's no need to carry that extra, that extra pain with us. Um, mm. And so I think that's a lesson, right? All of us. So it's never discounting the struggle or the challenges that you went through. It's choosing not to continue to ruminate with them and bring that pain with you. It's acknowledging that, learning from it, and then that's the moving forward. That's the healing process. You know, I mean, you can see it as, as early, you know, as a few hours after getting back to the hotel, the guys were already, they're resilient, right? They will forever think about that game and what could have been, but they're resilient. And they're already, you know, taking the learnings that they had from the tournament and from the game. And, you know, they're going to apply it right to their personal and professional mm -hmm. life moving forward. Travis, you're back home now in the United States. So welcome home to your bride and to your family. You have, for a moment, stepped away from the United States National Men's Soccer Club. So congratulations on that. But you're still doing the work of, of Yes And and leading other individuals and clubs and organizations forward. How do you help families and teams and large organizations strive collectively and collaboratively and selflessly for one goal? That's the beautiful thing about teams is that a team comes together to achieve a common goal, right? That's why, that's why you bring a team together. Why do we bring a team together? Because we have a common goal. What's the common goal? It's to win a World Cup. It is to, to be the best in our industry. It is to 
to help this community, whatever. So the common goal is the reason you bring the team together, right? So hopefully it's such a clear common goal that everybody's on the same page. But then John, the next step, which makes it so beautiful is John, share with me why this goal is so important to you. And I'm going to share with you why this goal is so important to me. And everybody who's a part of this team, we want them to share right. why this goal is important to them. That is where the diversity comes into place. right? The, the misconception would be that you want everybody to have the same homogenous motivation. And it's like, no, we don't want everybody thinking and having the same motivation, the thing that actually makes your group, your team so powerful is the diversity of motivation that everybody brings to the table. And when you, when you celebrate that and you embrace that, what it ends up doing is it makes your problem solving capability that much stronger and it protects you from your individual blind spots. So the more diverse your team, the fewer blind spots that you have. That's and Very that's what said. that's what makes that what that's what makes amazing teams and organizations so powerful is that they lean into the diversity of the group because it just you just end up casting your net, your metaphorical net so much wider, which helps you be better problem solvers and it helps you protect yourself from those blind spots. Brother, you are the leadership coach for this, this soccer team. Four years ago, they did not make the World Cup. You helped advance them through the first round. It's quite an accomplishment. As you look back on the last two plus years of serving, so not just the World Cup itself, but the last couple of years, what's a highlight for you? Yeah, I mean, the highlights, you know, the highlights are the, the, vulnerable, the vulnerable moments of players or staff members asking for help. Mm. And, 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 and being someone uh, that they feel safe enough to reach out to. That's like the highest praise. When someone comes to you in their most vulnerable spot. Yeah, those are the highlights. Tell me why for the first time during our conversation, my, my, my friend is showing vulnerability and, uh, <laughs> and really emotion. What, what is it about that question? And then your answer and your colleagues vulnerability that just moves you. Uh, cause I, cause I'm thinking of a, a few specific, a few specific examples over this time and just how, how difficult and how courageous it is to, um, you know, if we're if we're just talking about the players, the superficial glory side of being a professional athlete, it's so easy to focus on that. What is often lost in all of all of the benefits that they reap as professional athletes is that they have signed up for a profession where they are having to put themselves on the edge of vulnerability day in and day out, where they can fail in front of a billion people. I'm not exaggerating. They will fail in front of a billion people worldwide. And at any given day, their job can be taken. They can screw up on national global TV. They are wearing their worth vulnerably in front of the world. And so that is a very, it's a very courageous and vulnerable thing to be able to be on the inside where you see 
you see the fragility of humanity on display. Um, and to build an environment or to build a relationship where you can connect with someone on that level of vulnerability is it's a really it's a really special thing. It's a privilege to be able to do. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't take that lightly. I don't either. When someone invites you into the inside of their own shadowy soul, and they're you're the one they reach out to, there could not be higher praise. So I'm just I, I love your answer. I love that it's not first class on the flight over to the Middle East or you know. That was pretty good, John. That was pretty good. I'll be honest with you. I'll be honest yep. with you. I don't think I can travel any other way again. <laughs> but it wasn't your answer, Travis. Your answer was on the sidelines when no one was looking. Some kid put their arm around me and said, "Do you have a minute?" So, uh, man, thank thank you for sharing that minute with us. Many of our listeners right now are on their sidelines wondering um, about their self-worth. There aren't a billion looking on at their life, but sometimes some of our listeners wonder if anyone is looking on at their life. So for those who uh, are not the leadership coach for the United States men's national soccer team, but they want to take the next right step forward, what, what is your final bit of advice for the rest of our listeners who are trying to live yes and recognize our worth and realize better days are ahead? Presence is always a moment away, mm. right? And what does that mean, right? It's like everything that we desire, the connection that we desire, the impact that we desire, the worth that we desire, everything that we ultimately desire, it's a moment away, it's the, next, it's, it's, it's the next moment. The opportunity to connect with someone, the, the opportunity to, to transform someone's day, to smile, to be kind, to hold a door, to offer a compliment, to do a random act of kindness, it's because we all know it's when we extend ourselves to others is when we feel the greatest sense of worth because uh -huh. it's not about us anymore. You know, the pandemic proves how much we need people, right? Tragedies prove that, like, uh, whether it's a national tragedy, those are the moments where people think outside of themselves and they look to help others. And it's when people experience the greatest spike in self-worth. I have known you and looked up to you since 2014. And while some folks have beautiful books and deliver incredible keynotes, there are also a lot of folks who do those two things, but don't actually model it. And you model it on and off the field, on and off the stage, on and off the podcast. And it's, uh, it's a credit to you. So thank you for living. Yes. And thank you for elevating our lives. And I'm going to walk you through now seven questions you may or may not remember from our last dance on this podcast way back in March of 2017. Seven quick questions that tether all of our guests together, including Travis Thomas now twice so Travis, question number one is what's been the most influential book you've ever read? You know, it's, it might be a different answer than last time, John, but the one that comes to mind is uh, uh, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Tell me why that book is the one that moved you. It is so simple. It is so powerful and funny at the same time. But you will, anyone who reads it, they will feel like they've been kicked in the stomach and then hugged. And because it's all about anyone, which is everybody, who wants to live an authentic, purposeful life, what gets in the way, and then how to overcome it. And it's, it's uh, I, I've, I've probably recommended that book over the last 20 years more than any other. What is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little kid growing up in Flint, Michigan, 
that you wish you modeled as brilliantly today? I always felt <laughs> that I was special, not in an arrogant way, but there was something special about me. I constantly need to remind myself that as an adult. Mm. Great answer. <laughs> true as a child, true as a man, Travis, and not only for you, but for our listeners as well. If your home caught fire and your lovely wife, almost 25 years now and three kids are out, dogs are out, you have an opportunity of running it in and grabbing one item, one thing that really matters to you. What's the one thing you come back outside with? It was, this might be the same answer. This was a, a, when I was the assistant soccer coach for my alma mater back in 2008, the players, there's only one season, the players created a book for me uh, and they each wrote a page of the impact that I had on their lives. And again, that's what it's about. And I could, it just, oof, special. If you could sit on a bench, on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? That's an easy one. My mother passed away suddenly uh, in September of 2017, John, months after time I did this podcast. So sudden that none of us really got the opportunity to say goodbyes, proper goodbyes. I would meet mom at the park bench and we would just catch up. Mm. what's one thing you wish you had said and i know you were transparent with mom but what is one thing you wish you had even elevated to make sure she knew clearly uh, something from you to her hopefully i communicated this to her because i feel like i did uh, because the last few years of her life were very personally challenging for her and uh from a growth standpoint but I always wanted her to know how proud I was of her for, for, for taking it head on. And mm -hmm. so if I didn't reiterate that enough, that's what I would want her to know. What's the best advice that Coach Greg, Mom, Dad, Bride, Matt Miller, anybody else ever gave you? So the best advice Travis ever received is? You know, there's only one Travis Thomas. So be the best Travis Thomas there is. What advice would you, if you could go back in time over on the bluffs of the Mississippi, back to Principia and offer yourself some advice at age 20, what would you, uh, what wisdom would you whisper into your ear at age 20? Uh, listen to yourself, trust yourself and strap in. It's going to be quite a ride. <laughs> <laughs> Travis Thomas, it has been said that all great people can have a, their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? You cannot progress until you say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Travis Thomas, three <laughs> words to get unstuck. One of them begins with the word yes. Man, I want to thank you for saying yes to our, our Live Inspired podcast a second time. I want to thank you for saying yes to the United States men's national soccer team. I want to thank you for saying yes to both the challenges and the opportunities the, the difficulties and the blessings of life. You are a role model. You're exhibit A of what it looks like to be there for others. Well, John, that coming from you, that, uh, that means more than you can imagine. So thank you for having me back. And you know that um, uh, anything you need, I'm always a, a phone call away. 
My friends, that is my friend and now yours. His name is Travis Thomas. Today is your day. What a gift. Say yes and, and live inspired. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. I had so many notes jotted down, but the one that stood out most to me is how the team would convene in a circle the night before every match where Travis would pose the question, what are you taking home with you? And what are you leaving here? And again, what he means by this is before his athletes take the field, what do you want to be remembered for? And how do you want to represent yourself and your communities and your nation moving forward? And what can you leave behind? Because it will no longer serve you any longer. It's a great advice, not only as you're getting ready to hit the pitch of the soccer field in life, but as you're ready to take the next step forward wherever you are on your journey in life. For some of Travis's athletes, they may want to be remembered for incredible plays or the genuine sportsmanship displayed after each match, in particular the one with Iran. On the other hand, they may want to leave behind the rumination over a black shot, a bad call, or a mistaken run. Well, this practice isn't just for Travis's top athletes, is it? It's for those of us weathering a storm personally or professionally, financially or spiritually, and I believe this practice will help keep you grounded, present, that's a word you heard him use repeatedly, and engaged. My friends, if you'd like to hear more from my friend and now yours, Travis Thomas, let your fingers do a little bit of the walk and back to March of 2017, you'll find Travis at episode 20. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, don't miss the conversation that I had with another coach. Her name was Kathy Bresnahan. After the devastating loss of their team captain, Coach Kathy taught this Iowa City West Volleyball team lessons on grief, on empathy, on success, on supporting one another, and what real victory looks like in life. It is one of my favorite episodes. You will love it. I recorded it live with her. Check it out if you want to hear Coach Kathy at episode number 89. My friends, I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired community, and I want to remind you that the foundation is firm. The headwinds may be real, but the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Stay present and live inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com.